I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is your amazing pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, Dr. Santosh. I was listening to a radio program today, earlier today, Santosh, about White Castle. And it got me thinking, aside from the movie that made it a household name again, have you ever actually eaten White Castle? Now, I don't remember this. So I, I come from a, a Hindu background and we actually don't eat beef as a general rule. I'm a vegetarian. I was told by my parents that I had White Castle when I was like three or four years old. Like they were relatively new to this country and for various reasons, you know, went to White Castle. And I evidently just vomited everywhere. <laughs> That was the last time. (laughs) But thankfully, I don't remember that horrible, horrible experience. Well, most people tend to have some kind of reaction to sliders, and yours is among them. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I will say it was also a disappointing burger for me, although perhaps not to that extent. Okay, yes. And I'm so glad that you mentioned food poisoning because it gives me sort of a perfect intro into this week's topic, one that we have yet to do this season. Ooh, oh my gosh. Are we going now uh, in your history, in your in your past, 
you were a gastrointestinal aficionado. Uh, it, are we are we delving back into the bowels? Well, we are, but we're taking a very particular route there because it's time for the first of this season's Around the World in 80 Plagues. So what is this week's plague, you may ask? In case you perhaps did not look at the title of the episode. Yeah. Yeah, you should always, you know, I I would hope that people aren't randomly clicking on podcasts, but yeah. (laughs) Counterpoint, I would hope they are. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're we're going, we're delving the bowels. We're we're delving into the bowels. Um, Are uh, virus or bacteria? Bacteria. Bacteria. Oh, there's so many good ones to choose from. Are we doing um, like Staph aureus, like some, you know, spoiled rice and some food poisoning, that kind of a thing? Well, let me give you a riddle. Okay, okay. What bacteria dates back as far as hunter-gatherer times is named for something it's not found in? Oh, okay. And was described as smoky. <laughs> smoky. <laughs> All of those are things we're going to cover today. I, okay, I love my infectious diseases and I consider myself an expert in infectious diseases, but you, sir, are a hundred percent the better historian than I am. I'm very, very sad to say that I can think of many, many bacteria that go back, you know, even before humanity was even humanity. But the the other two, uh, I, I have, you know, there's lots of stuff where, you know, we named a bacteria after something that's not there. Smoky, I think you just lost me there. <laughs> well, someone is clearly not up on their Latin. But <laughs> will will this bacteria help me prevent forest fires? <laughs> this week we will be covering yeah. Salmonella. Ella. <gasps> Ella. No. A A A. <laughs> okay, so sal- salmon has nothing to do with the salmon. It it's salmonella. Not even a smoke. little. But let's oh. start a little bit yeah. further back. As we transitioned from hunter-gatherers to farmers. And we're going to open right up with a study by some paleopathologists, one of my new favorite fields. Yeah. For those of you who are new to the channel, and if you haven't explored this idea before, maybe you're young and you're thinking of a career, paleopathology is the study of past diseases specifically by digging up and going through remains the same way that you would to study ancient human civilizations, but you actually look you know, down and dirty for the pathogens and all this kind of a thing. So in this study, they recovered eight different subspecies of Salmonella enterica mm-hmm. uh, and extracted those genomes from skeletons of foragers, 
pastoralists and agro-pastoralists, or hunters, gatherers, and farmers, in western <laughs> okay. Eurasia that were from skeletons 6,500 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm seeing uh, sites in Russia, Switzerland, Turkey, Italy. Uh, so various sites. This was a very kind of far-ranging type of a study, huh? And all of those genomes from the different locations basically shared a single branch that's adapted to multiple mammals, which suggests that earlier strains of salmonella were not host-specific, meaning you could get the same one that an animal may. But we didn't start seeing them show up in the human population analyzing these skeletons until you reach the agricultural thing. So if you're just picking berries or gathering herbs, you are not getting salmonella. But the second you start growing your own food, you see it, which means it is one of the earliest bacteria we can see adapting to human cultural transformation. Oh, gosh, no. Josh, are, are you saying that we farmed our own salmonella? <laughs> like we, we settled down into farms and gathered animals into places, and then... There was enough, um, I'm guessing, poop <laughs> and everything in the soil, whereas previously we were wandering around, right? We were going from place to place. So the bacteria really didn't have a chance to take a foothold in the population. But we ended up farming this bacteria for ourselves. That, that's right. It's a homegrown <laughs> infection. Oh, no. So this is something that... I'm not unused to seeing, right? When you have a population density that's reached, you start to concentrate bacteria. And of course, the poor bacteria, Josh, they're just trying to live. They're just trying to make it in this crazy world. So they're going to take every advantage that we get. We talked about cities before and how if you have a buildup of population in a walled city, Things like plagues and rickettsia really have a chance to circulate and adapt to humanity, but this is this is a little sad and scary that we're the ones responsible for helping Salmonella get to us and then stick around and cause all this disease. Eighteen twenty nine, Pierre Louis, which is one of the Frenchest names I could possibly think of, <laughs> yeah. was the okay. first was the very first to coin the overall term typhoid fever after he was able to identify lesions in the lymph nodes of patients who had died from what was then called gastric fever. And the reason he went with typhoid is because typhus means smoky and was used to describe oh. the delirium that patients would exhibit with the disease. It's a really fancy, elegant way of saying somebody's head is in a fog. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is really interesting because typhus, like epidemic typhus, I, I guess was named completely differently, but kind of for the same reason, because typhus as it goes on, which is a tick-borne bacteria completely unrelated to salmonella, it will eventually cause encephalitis as you, you know, kind of fade out and then you won't die as much as you'll just stop functioning. So typhoid 
we'll, we'll talk about the pathogenesis and the disease process in a little bit, but same kind of thing. But I guess they wanted to differentiate it a little bit from typhus so that they didn't say, oh, this is the salmonella typhus and this is the rickettsia typhus. But that's so cool. Okay, so this is our smoky bacteria. One of the two. It's our smoky mentation, which is caused by the bacteria. That's how it got yeah. that name. Now, although this was described in the early 1800s, it's not until about 60 years later in 1880 when the actual organism is identified as Esenterica by German mm-hmm. pathologist. Um, and it wasn't cultured for another four years after that. Now, I'm I'm working my way towards how it got its name, but sure. you can see there's a lot of people involved. Yeah, makes sense. Usually discovering and then describing a disease that is this widespread, it, it it's not just one person that's just going to land on it and suss out everything. It's going to be a team effort. Now, in 1873... William Budd, a doctor in Bristol who was interested in intestinal fevers, as once so was I, <laughs> yeah, um, found that typhoid fever could be transmitted by a specific toxin present in excrement and that contaminated water or feces-contaminated water is what was responsible for that propagation. So according to this doctor, every case came from another case. This wasn't a spontaneously arising disease. Right. So remember way back in the Wayback Machine, we talked about people just learning to farm and then us ingesting salmonella bacteria and one particular family of salmonella enterica just becoming more and more adapted to humans. This is where we're at right now. Salmonella enterica, subspecies enterica, is very, very human adapted. And therefore, you have to pass it along from human to human. So it's, th- Josh, this isn't like our some of our E. coli's that we talk about, like the shigatoxin producing E. coli, which is also a consequence of farming and antibiotic overuse, where a, for instance, like a cow can harbor the bacteria and then poop it out onto, you know, vegetables and stuff like that. And then, you know, you end up eating it. This really has to be human to human. Despite that, we actually get the name from animals. And again, I want to remind you, not fish. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, pigs. Uh, you may be wondering, pigs aren't fish, Josh. How how does that happen? <laughs> well, okay. Late eighteen hundreds again. American veterinarian Daniel Elmer Salmon. Oh, seriously? <laughs> who coincidentally okay. was the administrator of the USDA research program? Oh my gosh despite the fact that a variety of scientists had contributed to this quest, he isolated the bacteria from pigs that eventually shared his name. So Salmonella, or Elmer Salmon, refers to a species of bacteria (laughs) inhabiting the intestines of people and animals, along with a large variety of other bacteria. Now, for those of you who are Simpsons fans, since all bacteria compete for the same food supply... 
they keep each other's growth in check. That's how your gut microbiome works. Only when the number of salmonella bacteria increases dramatically will they cause an infection, also called salmonellosis. Uh, so, you know, if you remember the Simpsons when Mr. Burns goes to the doctor and they're like, you have every disease and they're barely holding <laughs> each other in check. And Burns goes, I'm invincible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of enteric diseases, when we're talking about infectious diseases, happen to go like this. Now, we don't harbor many of these including viruses especially. So if you talk about norovirus or adenovirus, those are just plain not supposed to be there. But there's the off chance that many of you out walking around right now or listening to this podcast, you've just got a little, you know, benign salmonella just hanging out and it's not doing anything. It's playing with the firmicutes and the E. coli's and the bacterioides and you're, you're doing just fine. But if Your you body is a wonderland. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah. If you either ingest a, a a very pathogenic strain, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the taxonomy and everything else, or if you get an overgrowth, just like you said, now you start to actually get the symptoms that go along with gastroenteritis. And specifically, Josh, we'll be talking about typhoid later because that's a different type of complication where the bacteria will actually get into your system, not just stay in that beautiful little tube that runs down the center of you. Now, the most common symptoms include vomiting, nausea, fever, abdominal cramps, and diarrhea. Mm, the big five. Six? Now, this... This frequently is a food-borne bacteria. Remember, every case from, comes from a previous case. And the presence of these bacteria does not affect the look, taste, or smell of food. It's not a bacteria that contributes to decomposition. So you will not know just by looking what's infected with salmonella. Cooking does destroy the microbes, but food can still become contaminated once cooked if it comes into contact with raw food that harbors salmonella or if a food handler doesn't wash their hands properly after a visit to the bathroom. Yeah, so this is why we often say, especially in pediatrics, Josh, but in adult medicine as well, we'll say, hey, prepare your meats and eggs in one area and then move them over. And once they've been cooked, then please try to keep them away from where you did your food prep, like your chopping and your washing for your chicken and meats and eggs and that kind of a thing. We do run into salmonellosis, Josh, from time to time in kids uh, I should say more than time to time. It's one of the most common gastrointestinal bacterial bugs in, in children. And the young kids are often sick because the food will be prepared in the same area where you wash everything, including stuff like bottles. So if you don't separate out uh, these things that salmonella will just stick there and hang out unless you really wash it away or, you know, you, you heat your food nice and hot. Now, it usually takes about six hours for symptoms to appear from the time of consumption, but 12 is more common. So, you know, think back at least two meals usually. In, <laughs> and then once you have it, it can last anywhere from four to seven days. And the biggest 
danger usually comes from the diarrhea, the volume loss, the electrolyte loss. And that's why really the biggest treatment is rehydration. Mm-hmm. You, we try as much as we can in healthy individuals, previously healthy individuals with no immune system problems, to just let the body try to take care of this. And in the meanwhile, keep your nutrition and your water intake as high as possible. Now, you mentioned earlier that children often get salmonella santosh. And while we, of course, are going to talk about the foodborne aspects I think we should also mention that little children love touching stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know that sounds gross, but in all fairness, it is. And when I say stuff, I mean snakes, lizards, turtles, <laughs> and puppy dog yeah. tails, all the things. So, what are little boys made of? Salmonella. That's what little yeah. boys are made of. <laughs> and little girls uh, quite often. Uh, yes, absolutely. I thought you were going to go for uh, slightly younger children where oh, – I'm uh, sorry. You, it also affects baby chicks and ducklings if you want the younger crowd. <laughs> we we can go through that one too. I was thinking if they – you know, they, they touch their bum a little bit or uh, if you've had like a diaper change – and, you know, one person, you know, one child has diarrhea and they've got salmonella going on and then, you know, they, they scratch a little bit down or they, you know, <laughs> they go and touch other toys and then another kid comes along and picks up that toy and puts it in their mouth. I thought you were going to go down there to the, you know, even before they're big enough to go and find the lizards and the turtles and the whatnots. So, yeah, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, my gosh. I can't even tell you. <laughs> How many times April O'Neil would have had to visit a bathroom from all the exposures? Just yeah, and to be fair, the salmonella is a commensal organism for them, right? It's part of their normal microbiome on their skin and on their shells and part of their gut, so they're not bothered. And speaking of what are normal microbes for some and dangerous to others, that brings mm-hmm. us to the topic of carriers, non-infectious carriers, and perhaps one of the most famous in all of infection history, Mm. Typhoid Mary. Oh, yes, yes. Absolutely notorious. And sit back and relax, readers, because we're going to be telling you some scary things about a food handler, but we're also going to be dispelling some myths. So... Typhoid Mary was known as Mary Mallon, a Irish immigrant who showed up in the U.S. in the 1880s, and she initially was working as a cook for a New York banker, and through references from him, then hired out as a cook at several other private homes throughout the New York area. Now, mysteriously, as she moved from household to household, she caused several outbreaks of disease, always vanishing just before an epidemic could be traced back to like, wait a minute, didn't you have that new cook? So she was responsible for the contamination, at least that we know of directly, 122 people, five of who died as a result of their infection. Now, in 1907, only a year after she first shows up on the scene cooking, 
almost 3,000 inhabitants of New York had been infected by Salmonella typhi, with Typhoid Mary being the main reason for a lot of them based on an infectious tree. So there was a health inspector who was actually going through New York and working in public health and actually going through employment records and trying to trace, you know, who are the people who are handling food, who are cooking, and, you know, that a, a common person that can be linked to a lot of the illnesses that were being found. Uh, here and there. So you actually do create a tree of contacts. A, a lot of the time, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but maybe erroneously so, starting with one you know, person, like a source case, and then seeing how that disease was transmitted to others and how those people transmitted it to others. So you create branches just like a tree. Now, Mary knew that the fuzz was on to her, which is partially why she kept disappearing from house to house as soon as <laughs> oh, people gosh. started getting sick. Um, eventually, she was tracked down and police intervened and she was forced to give a stool sample against her will. Like she had been asked and she had said, no, thank you. And they got it out of her anyway. Then it was examined, <laughs> and fa- which I don't even want to think about how you force no, somebody no, to give I- a stool sample. <laughs> Um, I essentially she was just locked in a hospital room and, you know, there was a bucket to poop in. And, you know, unless she wanted to do something drastic, uh, that fecal sample would be sitting there when someone came in to collect it. And they did identify salmonella in it. Now, at the time, she was offered a gallbladder operation. We'll get to why that's important later. Uh, But she declined. She said, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I feel healthy. I am not going under the knife. And Uh, to her credit, she probably did. She probably felt fine. She was then transferred to North Brother Island in Riverside Hospital. So it's an island off the coast of Manhattan uh, that is now just a bird sanctuary. You can't go there unless you're doing a study. But it did serve as a tuberculosis hospital and a quarantine hospital. And she was the first known healthy carrier of typhoid fever in the United States, which is partially why this was so scary to her. You know, she didn't understand how someone healthy could spread disease. And so she kept trying to fight back. She sued the state. She petitioned the Supreme Court. You know, this is somebody who would be complaining about being unjustly imprisoned, even though we know she was actively transferring the disease. This is really a perfect example of poor patient communication. Yes. And likewise, bad ethical practices and really unjust treatment of a person who really just wants to understand what's going on. I will say to not to let anybody off the hook, but to kind of justify what was going on here. We are in the nascent eras of you know germ theory and understanding what's going on with bacteria and how they transmit robert cook uh josh all the way back in germany hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Had really described healthy carrier state of any given bacteria. Just he, he, he was talking about this in like 1902, just a few years before Mary got quarantined. So prior to this, physicians and physician scientists were all thinking of a paradigm where if you were sick, you would act sick, you would you would have symptoms of the disease. And if you were well, you were well. And so this novel idea of a healthy carrier was just making its round. So it's possible that the public health officer or the other doctors really weren't able to clearly describe to a person what this meant, this this healthy carrier state, especially if she didn't have the education to understand what was going on. You were not the only one to feel that way. And when the city held an election for a new health commissioner, mm -hmm. Ernst J. Letter took pity on Mary and released her on the promise that she would never again work as a cook. Good. Excellent job. All right. She was we're, and we're um, all done. And that's the end of the story. She was immediately found to be working as a cook, again, <laughs> causing typhoid outbreaks. Josh. <laughs> oh. oh, no, Mary, why? <laughs> she was then sent back to North Brother Island, where she lived until her death in 1938. They also tried a number of treatments on her, uh, experimental ones to see how to treat a carrier state or if anything could be done to lessen it. Uh, so yeah, instead of working with her to make her realize she's a risk factor, they quarantined her twice and turned her into a laboratory. Now, there were reasons they did so, but that doesn't make it any more ethical. So in modern days, we no longer have to forcibly attain the stool of the suspected ill. Instead, we track all your data. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh yeah yeah much <laughs> which way is better I don't know uh I do want to talk about the fact that Mary really was stigmatized there was evidence pretty strong evidence at the time Josh that yes she was responsible for about 50 people getting ill uh maybe as much as a uh, as many as 100 depending on what sources that you find but by the time Mary passed away in pretty much solitary confinement on North Brother Island the healthcare surveillance system around New York actually found about 400 asymptomatic carriers of salmonella typhi. Um, 
none of those fo- folks got quarantined or locked up or anything. So the, there was a little bit of security theater going on here where the, you know, whatever health department was got to say, oh, we got the source. We got it taken care of. Whereas, you know, this this wasn't a really well-performed trackdown uh, to stop this epidemic at all. But yeah, I guess nowadays we just, what, internet things like cookies or what's going on? So during... <laughs> During a 2021 multi-state outbreak of salmonella, uh, which was associated with Italian-style meats, so like processed cuts, um, food are disease detectives and also the supermarket employees uh, went out investigating, kind of like that movie Dumb Money, where there was the one guy who did his own thing and then escalated it to the post office. Uh, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so here they had ill people shared the last four digits of their credit card number with public health officials. No chance for scams there. Who, <laughs> who then worked closely with a retailer to get food purchase information. This confirmed the specific Italian meat product that ill people purchased. And this was used to guide sampling and trace back activities which then led to the recall. That's how most recalls happen. You actually have to get the right amount of data to figure out what's making people sick. Yeah, and I will say, Josh, in this case, when it is a public health system and everything else like that, and you're sharing those, you know, those last four digits, I will advocate for our public health officers there really haven't been any reports ever of credit card scams and things of this. No, but, no, no. But I'm saying people who are trying to do and most investigators oh, most investigators will not request a purchase history from the industry without having already obtained permission from the consumer. Uh, and that yes. may be consent yeah. over the phone or writing in via paper, email, text. And this is then shared with the retailer because they want to know what's making our people sick. One of the most expensive foodborne illness outbreaks in the nation mm. was contaminate, salmonella contaminated peanut products from the Peanut Corporation of America. It affected more than 700 individuals in 46 states with wow. thankfully only nine deaths. Uh, but it did put a bit of a scare, meaning people stopped purchasing peanut butter, even from brands that were not distributed by the Peanut Corporation of America. So this had some pretty widespread implications uh, all the way up and down the food supply chain, which uh, how much do you suppose were was the estimated final cost? Uh, 700 people. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, across multiple states and everything, right? So uh, the cost of investigation, hospitalization for a lot of them, I would imagine. Um, I because it's the United States and we have such horrible healthcare costs over here. Uh, you said how many deaths, Josh? So the financial toll of this outbreak was yeah over one billion dollars why <laughs> that's in i wasn't both, gonna go there 
That's oh in gosh. both healthcare costs as well as projected business losses from all the peanut butter that was avoided from 2008 to 2009. Got it. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Nowadays, about 1 million people a year are infected with salmonella, and about 23,000 of those require hospitalization, and about 500 of those die. And this is data from here in the United States from our CDC, those of you listening abroad. Now, due to vaccination for salmonella, the incidence of typhoid fever in all developed countries is only about five cases for each million people per year. Yeah. And public sanitation as well. For those of you who are curious, we don't routinely uh, vaccinate against uh, typhoid uh, and, and salmonella here, but we encourage it very strongly with our travelers who are going abroad, especially to salmonella typhi endemic areas, um, you know, getting a vaccine before they come back. But the other emphasis really, Josh, has been public sanitation and a really, really amazing uh, food and safety system uh, that I'm, I'm going to get a little political here, needs to be well-funded and well-maintained because it really, really does limit these outbreaks when we find them and prevents so many more from happening by regulating our food quality. Well, how many more? I gave you the most expensive food outbreak in the world or in the sure. nation. What about mm -hmm. how many people do you think were affected by the largest food infectious outbreak? Oh, uh, that was hundreds, uh, thousands, probably like a, a few thousand. So I will tell you, it took place in the 1970s. Okay. Among the Navajo Nation Indian Reservation at a barbecue gone wrong. Oh, no. Okay. 3,400 persons from oh. a contaminated potato salad served to 11,000 people. Oh my gosh. Oh no, potato salad. Why? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. And like you said, because salmonella is one of these bacteria that they, they don't really um, show any signs of rotting. I, I'm guessing that the potato salad looked and smelled fine. Yeah. Aside from being yeah. stored 16 hours at improper temperatures. Oh, oh, that allowed it to grow. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so you can limit the growth of salmonella by keeping, you know, your food very, very cold as well. Um, and after you've cooked it properly, but if there's a small amount there and then you keep it at the wrong temperature, you know, you're going to have problems. There is one exception to this rule, Josh, which is about eggs, but we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about prevention and practical steps to so stop from getting salmonella. So let's get into a little bit of the pathology and what it looks like under a microscope. Um, I know I don't normally bring that up for our plagues, but I think it's important or at least interesting here. But they can be separated into a whole bunch of serotypes based on two, two different antigens. Uh, which we'll call O and H. So you have the outermost oh. portion, O, that covers <laughs> the bacteria's surface, 
and uh-huh. a very thin, slender, thread-like structure, like a little rotor called the H antigen mm-hmm. that's part of the flagella. And when cases with one particular serotype increase based on how the O or the H looks, they suspect an outbreak, and that's how disease detectives start their investigation. So there's about five different serotypes that we know of that can cause 42 different kinds of salmonella. Now, this is not like, oh, this is the salmonella that makes you shoot lasers out of your eyes, and this is the one that has you vomit White Castle burgers. It's They all cause similar symptoms, but their particular approach may vary a little and is a bit more subtle. Yeah, so Josh, I'll clarify the five uh, <laughs> of Salmonella enterica, subspecies enterica, which is by far and away the most common one uh, that we talk about with humans. Um, and a lot of them have fun names that are named after where they were discovered. But the five serotypes, like uh, typhi, and then about four other serotypes of paratyphi, are the ones that we worry about when we talk about enteric fever or typhoid fever. So of the five serotypes, let's break down a couple. The first that we'll talk about is, of course, salmonellosis or uh, salmonella cholerasius, named by and for Dr. Salmon. And this is all in a lovely, a lovely Pokemon book of Salmonella disorders known as the Atlas of Salmonella. So, yeah. so do, I, do you know what the, the cholera suis means? Something huh? with pig livers, gallbladders? Yeah. <laughs> so cholera is, you know, what we think about with cholera, like the horrible watery diarrhea. And then suis is pig. So he named this serotype uh, pig diarrhea. and and that one is unique because it often invades the bloodstream Uh, the average age of people infected with this is 40 and you usually only see it in people who live in rural areas and work with pigs hence the name that's how that's the strain that gave the whole family its moniker now like the (laughs) Moving on to the next, and the one that we spent the most time with, the majority of other serotypes are Salmonella enteritidis, and it affects people of all ages. It actually wasn't a big problem until the early 1980s. That's when it started to appear in the Northeast, and then it spread to the Mid-Atlantic, and then by the end of the decade, it was everywhere. It's the most common serotype in the United States, and... Here's part of why. Imagine a healthy looking, but secretly infected chicken. Um, let's call her, <laughs> let's call her Typhen Mary. Okay. And this chicken lays eggs with a contaminated yolk. And this is the one that's often linked to eggs. So if an egg it is allowed to develop, it infects the new chick. If the egg is for eating and someone eats the egg raw or undercooked, like somebody say, perhaps Rocky, a movie that really upped the popularity of drinking raw eggs in the eighties. That person may subsequently been, that person may subsequently be infected with salmonella enteritis. Uh, Since the nineties and the fact that we no longer worship um, raw food, drinking boxers, infection (laughs) rates have decreased. Also the egg industry put a few more controls on egg flocks 
And But it got so bad, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration had to put in something called the egg rule in 2010. And we've <laughs> seen cases really drop off since then. Do uh, you want to take a guess as what the egg rule says? Uh, <laughs> I You have to keep it really cold or really warm. What do you have to do? Yes, one of those things. Uh, <laughs> I'll keep them probably so, in the United States. It's keep them cold, I'm guessing. So eggs have to be transported at an ambient temperature of 45 degrees, no later or beginning 36 hours after the eggs have been laid. And that's Fahrenheit, by the way. So it's a little above freezing. The next serotype of the five is agona, like agona. Oh, no. And <laughs> that one's also linked to chickens. It was first seen with ch in chicken feed using contaminated Peruvian fish meal. Uh, it was contaminated probably Wait, during what? the drying or grinding process. And because oh. it was placed in chicken feed, it ended up spreading around the world very, very quickly. In the U.S., of course, we saw it in our chickens and turkeys. Uh, but back to Typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon, remember how they originally offered her just a random gallbladder infection out of the blue? Did oh, you think the, I was uh, going to leave that as a as a <laughs> unfinished plot line? Her her cholecystectomy, yeah. They said they, we'll take out your gallbladder and then you can go home. By the way, to an you know poorly educated, I'm guessing person in the early 1900s, what the hell are you talking about, Beavis? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Did you think I was going to leave that that plot thread untied? Well. <laughs> Eventually, a postmortem study of Mary showed that her source of infection was gallstones in her gallbladder that were just coated in Salmonella and Teridides. Had she undergone the operation, she likely would have been cured and could have resumed life as a cook without the danger. Approximately 1-5% to of patients will become chronic carriers of the Salmonella enterica serotype typhi, even if they've had the proper amount of antibiotics. Yeah, it, it really stinks. But you get sick, you know, originally, and you, you can be well treated. Nowadays, we have an array of antibiotics that we can use. Because of antibiotic overuse, we do have resistant typhoid fever <laughs> over the planet, but we have some good weapons that you can go for. But this salmonella doesn't easily die, and it likes to hide out. So you'll kill the majority of the bacteria, and the person will feel better and maybe entirely recover. But in this country and in several others, in order to be declared cured, even after treatment, we still look for stool samples to make sure people aren't intermittently shedding, because if they are, they need prolonged antibiotic treatment, or in Typhoid Mary's case, what they were suggesting, Josh, was... Removing her gallbladder with its infected gallstones. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about the antibiotics that we do use to treat this. The very first one ever used was chloramphenicol. Now you may be saying to yourself, I've never heard of that. And that's because we don't really use it anymore for a wide variety of reasons. But only two years later, it developed drug resistance 
to that drug, which honestly, no big loss, uh, given that Clarimfenicol, as I said, has a lot of side effects. Currently, we give drugs like ciprofloxacin. Really, rehydration is the best treatment, but if it's severe enough to be causing volume depletion, that's when you want to involve antibiotics. Absolutely. Now, we do have an exception for Salmonella typhi and paratyphi that cause the bad one, the, para, the typhoid fever, especially because it can cause bad outbreaks and cause a carrier state and long-term consequences. So those folks get treated no matter what. Um, we are able to use oftentimes our good old third generation cephalosporins, Josh, the old vitamin R, rocephin, ceftriaxone. Uh, and as long as the bacteria is susceptible, then this is a good choice as well. But like I said, unfortunately, in many parts of the world, especially in parts of the world where typhoid fever, enteric fever is endemic, we have much higher rates of resistance to antibiotics with Salmonella typhi and all of the other yucky, yucky serovars. So treatment is, like I said, really mostly making sure you keep ahead of your fluid losses. The best thing you can do is to wash your hands. Now, around the world, where do you think the most Salmonella is? The it's going to be in nice, warm, moist places, probably. <laughs> are you are we talking about all types of salmonella or the typhoid fever causing? Ones? Well, you're not wrong about the nice, warm places. In fact, it's present in the entire European food chain, except Finland, Sweden and Norway, who have <laughs> incredibly low rates of salmonella. So that's yeah. that's a good one. You know, the countries that are working refrigerators <laughs> uh, don't really have those kinds of problems. But yeah. over 60% of outbreaks are seen in Slovakia and Spain, most of which are linked to eggs. Yeah. And that does have a little bit to do with the food handling rules in some of these countries. Josh, when here's some uh, fun egg trivia. <laughs> when, when a hen lays an egg, it is covered in an antibacterial coating that's native to uh, some of the mucus that comes out with the egg. If you don't wash that off and you just keep the egg at room temperature, it will actually provide a pretty strong barrier against uh, bacteria as a whole. In a lot of countries, we'll actually wash this layer off and actually sanitize the outside of the egg before refrigerating it. But in countries where they'll say, oh, you can keep this at room temperature for a few days, not forever, then this basically this mucus layer isn't washed completely off. So that's why you have a little bit of a higher propensity of transmitting salmonella in those kind of scenarios, especially if you leave those eggs out at room temperature for too long. So now you know where salmonella hides around the world. It's been responsible <laughs> for the largest outbreak, the most expensive outbreak. Uh, it got named for just some random USDA bureaucrat. And <laughs> look, Salmon not going to lie, not going to oh. lie, when I started when I started researching this episode, I was convinced and had thought, you know, I was this many days old when I yeah, learned yeah. that it was not, in fact, from salmon. Yeah. 
I had never taken the time to actually take a look. Uh, I, I did. I didn't think of you know that it was from Salmon because you know we we you would talk to me about this and you know at the beginning of the episode he said hey by the way it has nothing to do with what it sounds like but I absolutely love the origin story of this name and and how it came to be and everything and now Josh we're up to thousands and thousands of serotypes of the or salmonella sub, enterica. sub-serovars. Se- sub-serovars, yeah, of salmonella enterica enterica because we just like keep finding more <laughs> just all over the planet. So we were originally really scared of typhoid and typhoid Mary and all those other kind of things. But now we know that this is one of the most common bacterial causes of foodborne illness pretty much around the world. And that's it for this week's Around the World in 80 Plagues. (laughs) So we hope you enjoyed it. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can do that on whatever social media you use. We're on Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever, TikTok. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Sign up for our mailing list so you can catch us when we go on uh, live tours. And uh, what else? This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Sacho and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands. Really, soap on your hands. You don't want to get salmonella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, soap and water, please, not the alcohol rubs for salmonella. Please continue. Yeah, yeah, you don't want drunk <laughs> salmonella. Um, <laughs> a shot in your arm, a spin on your globe, maybe not to Spain or Slovakia for eggs, if based mm-hmm. on what we've heard. But for the rest of the things in those countries, lovely. And once you've done all of those things, then uh, happy travels. Bye, everybody. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.